working our way, little by little, through the book of Acts. We've chosen this book, not only so we can see historically from where we have come, but we chose this book so that we can understand what it is we are to be about. I said a week or so ago that we have perhaps never lived in a more dangerous time to be a Christian. Now, for you history nerds and your brains start kind of going at 10,000 RPMs or so, you think back to the ancient Rome after the church took root in the first and second centuries. That was a dangerous time to be a Christian, right? I mean, you wouldn't be made fun of for having a copy of one of Paul's letters. You might be hauled off into the Colosseum and devoured by a lion or crucified on the road into Rome. There are places all over the world today where if you are found with a Bible or to be a follower of Jesus, your very life is in the line. That's dangerous. I don't mean it so much when it comes to our organic lives, our physical lives, but spiritually speaking, has there ever been an age which is more dangerous than this one? Because we lead, by and large, lives of comfort. And if we're not careful, as the people of God, comfort chokes our faith. It constricts our airway. It puts its icy grip around our hearts and it makes them cold. So that not only are we no longer in awe of what God has done for us in Christ... But the consequence of this is that we don't really care if others treasure him either. For if comfort and ease grip our hearts and constrict our airways and grip our hearts and keep them from beating for God, the consequence necessarily is that we're not going to care if anybody else treasures him either. And what's striking about the early church is that Jesus was so very real to them, the resurrected Lord who had died for them and had been raised from the dead in power to conquer sin and death, that they could not help but be in awe of Him and tell others about Him. And the church grew exponentially. And so again today in Acts chapter 11, the first 18 verses, we are going to find That Jesus is the hope, the exclusive hope of all peoples, of all peoples everywhere, all peoples without discrimination. There is no other hope for humanity than Jesus, which means that we have to be careful to recognize those things which constrict our airway and grip our hearts and lead us to comfort And therefore, to not treasuring God and worshiping Him as we should. And and then consequently, to consider how we must change and repent so that we can get the gospel to those who have not yet heard. That's why we exist as a church. We are not here to primarily be a more moral group of people in our communities. We are here primarily to be those who treasure Jesus and are ambassadors for him 
Every church being like a little outpost, an, an embassy for our king. So let's read together Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now the the rest of the New Testament, the, the letters of Paul, indicate that there were those who were of a circumcision party who were perhaps not true followers of Jesus. They were just pure legalists, pure moralists. That's probably not what Luke is indicating here. These were people probably who had come to faith in Jesus but were still very steeped in their Jewish faith. So this circumcision party criticizes Peter. So, so Peter's on a high coming out of chapter 10. The gospel's getting to the Gentiles, and, and now they're like killjoys, throwing water on the fire in his heart. So what's their charge? You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Maybe with a sneer they say this. But verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. May God teach us and change us through his word. We have commented repeatedly as we've been working through these first ten chapters of Acts and now into chapter 11, that Jesus is still at work from heaven his work of redemption, accomplishing it through his people, this early church. This is important because it reminds us that we are not alone. Jesus gave marching orders back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the gospel was to go to Jerusalem and then the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the world. It was to, to move out in concentric circles. In Acts chapter 10, Jesus makes sure 
that Peter understands that this mission needs to be fulfilled, and he's going to use Peter to take the gospel to people that Peter, frankly, didn't like very much. People that Peter saw as dangerous. The Jews had always felt like the Gentiles were a threat to their purity. And in some ways, God had built this into their religious system. They were to be separate from the world around them. They were to be holy like God was holy. But the irony of the Old Testament, the first 39 books of our Bible, is that as you think about the the moral declension, the, the fallenness of humanity, that the 39 books of the Old Testament are primarily about the Jewish people, are they really any morally better than the nations around them, than than the Gentiles around them? In fact, the truth of the matter is, very often, they were as bad, if not worse, than the nations around them. The mere possession of the law could not ever make them holy. When Herod the Great rebuilt the temple, he dedicated 35 acres to it in the heart of Jerusalem. This was larger than even Solomon's temple. 35 acres is pretty large. The outer ring, the outer courtyard of the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. This was symbolic. The Gentiles were allowed to to see the temple, the place where God's presence was meant to dwell among His people, a reminder of the people's sin and the need for sacrifice, but that God was faithful to atone for sin. But the Gentiles could only sort of peer at it, look at it, consider it from afar. Even geographically and even logistically, architecturally, they were kept at at arm's length, far distant from God. What happened when Jesus died and gave up His Spirit on the cross? The innermost part of the temple, the veil which separated from the the holy place from the holiest place was, was torn in two giving not only Jesus' ethnic brothers and sisters access to God, but all peoples. So what we see going on here in Acts chapter 10, and now Peter's report of what happened in chapter 10, as he goes back to Jerusalem now in the first 18 verses of chapter 11, this is an incredibly momentous occasion. We are reading about one of the most pivotal points in all of human history, For the reconciling work of Jesus is now extended to all people. And Jesus is making sure this happens. Pushing back against the racial and ethnic prejudices of His people. And showing that that His work of redemption is for all peoples. The first thing that we find from this text today is that we must be wary on guard against. We must be wary of internal obstacles to God's or our ministry of reconciliation. You ever had this happen in your life where you get really excited about something and then you run into a killjoy? That's a 
perfect descriptor for some people in our lives, right? Like you're on cloud nine about something really good, and then you run into Debbie Downer, who can find something pessimistic about anything going on in life. Helicopter parents can be like this, right? Children find the perfect tree to climb, the perfect rocks to jump off of, and, and then mom, hopefully, maybe usually mom, walks along the edge of the forest and sees this happening and says, you're going to break an ankle, stop having fun. But this happens to us as grown-ups too. And it's happened to us spiritually before. I remember when I was a teenager, our youth group went through this really palpable sense of revival. Kids were coming to faith in Jesus and really following him. But the parents in our church just saw this as sort of like a, a mountaintop experience and, and eventually we'd all just sort of fall off and fall back into the mundane humdrum existence that they lived every day. It's easy to be a wet blanket. It's easy to be a killjoy. And, and that's what the circumcision party, again, likely people who had really placed their faith in the resurrected Lord, but people who were so steeped in their Jewish traditions that, that when they found out that Peter had gone in and not only told the people, Cornelius and his band of people in Caesarea, told them about Jesus and the good news, but actually hung out with them a few days and ate their food? Well, they're really concerned. Because Peter might have soiled himself. He, he might have become morally impure. Now, lest we be too hard on them, Peter was the same way back in Acts chapter 10, right? This vision of the sheet comes down from heaven and there's all these animals scurrying around and Peter as a good Jew who had very strict dietary laws was not allowed to eat certain things. And the Lord Jesus is making it clear that, that not only are dietary laws going to be done away with, but, but primarily the point of the vision is a spiritual one. I'm going to make all people clean. The gospel is going to be for all people. All people who will trust me can come in. There's not going to be concentric circles of access to the Father. I have made it open to all. And Peter, you have to overcome your prejudices. No matter how long they've been with you, no matter how deep-seated they are, you've got to overcome these because you're a sinner too. And I've welcomed you. And you must welcome others. My 10-year-old, my fourth grader, had his field trip this past week. And so I went with him. It was really fun. We went to the State House and then to the Miller Kelton House, or the Kelton House. Have you been to the Kelton House down off kind of near Main Street? Um, Kelton House was a, a pretty large home that was built back in the 19th century by some grocers. They were people who were pretty wealthy commercial owners in the area. They would transport goods back and forth between Columbus, which was like 18,000 people back in the early part of the 19th century, up to places like Worthington and Clintonville and stuff. So he had wagons that were going back and forth all the place. But he was also very sympathetic to the abolitionist movement. So they used their home, which would at that time be on the outskirts of town, kind of in the country, to be one of the stations in the Underground Railroad. And one of the things that often happened whenever the runaway slaves escaping to the north would come, usually at night because that's when they could travel more safely, they would knock on the door and one of the 
code phrases that they used whenever they came to the door is that they were a friend of a friend. So when the door would be wrapped upon, the owner inside would say, who's there? One of the code phrases was, a friend of a friend. That's beautiful. Not only helping us see how historically people of goodwill push back against really awful, horrible things, but it demonstrates to us what Jesus has done for us, right? Who was Peter to say to Cornelius and these new Gentile believers that you can't come in? Who were the circumcision party, the, these Debbie Downers, who were they to say that, that the Gentiles couldn't come in? And that's what Peter is essentially saying now to this party as he tells them the story. They're my friends now, and more importantly, they're the friends of our Lord. And they are to be seen as our brothers and sisters. And the truth of the matter is, very often, our own obstacles to mission, to seeing the gospel transform lives, are internal. In other words, in, in a country like ours where we still have freedom to assemble and to practice our faith, the primary threats are, are often not external. Now, as you go to work, as you go to school, you may face opposition to your faith. That is true. But if we're being honest, sometimes our opposition to, to missional expansion, to seeing the gospel really transform lives, is internal. We've already talked today about comfort. We all like comfort. In, in fact, I think in some ways, the idol of comfort is an even more tricky, subtle, and pernicious. I invite you to, to start installing the word pernicious into your vocabulary. It means really, really evil. Sometimes comfort is a more subtle and pernicious idolatry than even wealth. Most of us realize that we're not going to have a 30-acre estate somewhere in the mountains and then a beach home and like four Maybox at each place, right? Like that's not our lives for most of us. But most of us struggle with the idolatry of comfort, and that can be a very internal thing for a church. Dare I say for a suburban church. For has there ever been a time, even though we are not rich when it comes to American standards, has there ever been a time where there's been a more wealthy, comfortable people than this one? And it's numbing and it's constricting and it's dangerous. Can a church like ours get too comfortable in its faith? Good theology, loving relationships, a safe place for our children. All the while forgetting that people are all around us dying and going to hell. Now, I grew up in the kind of faith tradition where the missionaries would come in frequently, right? And back then we had uh, slide presentations at the end of, of their visit. This was long before the advent of video on a screen. 
and uh, the slide thing never worked right, and they would always get jumbled, and it'd be like three upside down, but but uh, they would do that, and then like a Steve Green song would play, People Need the Lord, and then they'd give like this little thing at the end saying, if you don't give us your money, then the blood of the natives are on your hand, and I remember being like an 11-year-old and just being like completely guilt-ridden, and, and I think that is manipulative. That is, that is not what we do here. But the truth of the matter is, we all have a responsibility under command of the Lord Jesus, who made us, who sustains us, who saved us, and who is advocating for us right now. He's our Lord. He's our Master. He has called us to be His witnesses, to go make disciples. Now, most of us will not go to exotic places to do this, although maybe some of us should. Worthington and Westerville and Delaware and Marion and Lewis Center and Powell and other communities in which we live. These are not exotic places. But people still walk in darkness. People still need the light of Jesus. And the idol of comfort, a subtle and pernicious idol, may lead us to not fulfill God's call upon us, our ministry of reconciliation. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I mentioned just a bit ago that every church, including this one, is to be an embassy representing our sovereign and taking his message to those who will hear. Verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves, verse 12, to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Down in verse 15, he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 18, and this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, Jew and Gentile alike, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul understood that he had been reconciled to God so that he might carry out the ministry of reconciliation. So, so I'm not here today to, to necessarily make you feel guilty if you are not a faithful witness to Jesus. However, if we are not, it is not a stretch to say that we are not obeying the Lord Jesus. And so I say to you, as a sinner, as an offender of God's law, that when we don't obey, we do sin. Now, what will this look like for you? What, what's your quota? You see, whenever we ask that question, we're already off the rails, right? I don't know. 
but, but I do know that no matter how many people the Lord Jesus will bring to himself through your witness, that he has called you and me to be his witnesses. You have a neighbor. You have a co-worker. You, you have a family member who has not yet trusted Jesus. Now, one of the dangers for us as conservative, theologically precise Christians is we can insulate ourselves and our children so much from the world that we frankly never rub elbows with the people who don't know Jesus. That all of our friends, all of our co-workers, all of our peers are actually people who are following Jesus. This is nice, it's comfortable. That as a missionary said many, many years ago, some long to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I'd rather run a rescue shop within a yard of hell, he said. You see, hell is all around us. And there is someone that God is calling you and me to get the good news to. And let us not allow our idolatry of comfort and ease to keep us from that. So I'm putting that out there, not to guilt trip you, but to allow the Holy Spirit to let that rest on us today. There are other internal things which can trip us up. Fear of the world. Like Peter and these of the circumcision party, prejudices. In this case, they were mostly ethnic. But they can be socioeconomic too. One of the reasons why we want to go serve down in another part of our city is not because we're better but so that we can push back against our tendency to think we are better and to, to serve those who are less fortunate. The idol of comfort. The fear of the world. Ethnic and socioeconomic prejudices. There are all kinds of internal things which will keep us from doing what Jesus calls us to do. And, and I say it that way so that you will remember that this is not you doing the work. You are not alone. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, did he not say, I am with you until the end of the age and all authority has been given to me? We're not alone. We're just ambassadors. We are not the king. And if it's true that only Jesus can sovereignly save, all we have to do is speak. Now, might it cost us something? The answer, of course, is yes. But is there any more thrilling, anything more thrilling and more life-giving to a church than when someone comes to faith in Jesus? Do you not want that here? I desperately want that. So how will we leverage our resources of time, giving up something perhaps that's even more precious than our resource of money? How will you leverage your time to interact with others who don't know Christ and get them the good news? Are you doing that? How do you, as an act of repentance, need to reorder your week so that you can do that? In your schools, sports, cookouts, whatever the case may be. 
How will you reorder the expenditure of your finances? Another resource we have to get the gospel to places that we currently already pour money into, like Kenya and Dubai. How will we leverage our resources of of time and money, giving up sacrificially what, what we do possess? We are the stewards of it to bless other people. Jesus poured himself out to death. The king of eternity. He gave up everything to reconcile us to God. Let us be careful that we are not hoarders of time and money when there are people all around us who desperately need the Lord Jesus. We will not take time to tease this out today, but I I do want to say to you as a little corollary study that in Galatians chapter 2, Peter himself was guilty of the same sin that the circumcision party is guilty of here at the beginning of Acts chapter 11. Paul had to confront Peter about his own ethnic prejudices that showed up again later in Peter's ministry. Why do I mention this to you in brief? Because this is an ongoing thing. We don't change immediately. Change takes time. It's incremental. So I say to you, don't be discouraged if you still struggle with the same thing today that you struggled with some time back. And, And don't be surprised if in a couple of years you have to revisit that same struggle. The Lord Jesus overcomes our sinfulness and overcomes our opposition to Him, our our lack of full worship over time. So even if you go and share the good news of Jesus with somebody this week, pushing back against your idols and your prejudices, don't be surprised if in a year you need to hear this word again. I do. Peter was not transformed overnight from his own obstacles of faith, and neither will we be. Let's look back in Genesis chapters 11 and 12. We did this briefly last week, but I want to revisit it and make a point that I didn't quite make last week the way I wanted to. You are relatively familiar, most of you, with Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. As we talked about last week, People at that time spoke one language, and they wanted to build a tower to heaven. They wanted to build a monument to their achievement. They they wanted to deify themselves. They wanted to be God. But God saw their pride. God saw the motivations of their heart. He disrupted their plans. And in verse 6 of Genesis 11, Moses records, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. In other words, their their moral declension, their moral falling will just get worse and worse and worse. So let's bust it apart. So he gave them different languages, and then they couldn't build anymore because they couldn't communicate. And they were spread throughout the earth. So what is this? This is the cursing of the nations. This is the result of Adam and Eve's sin. You might think that after the flood of Genesis chapters 6 through 9, after God wiped the world clean and left one righteous family, that there'd be a beautiful restart, a righteous restart. But that's not the case for the 
fact that we find here in Genesis chapter 11 is that humanity remained evil. Why? Because their hearts were evil. And as we mentioned last week at the beginning of chapter 12, what does God do? In light of all this, the spreading out of the nations, away from Him, wanting to be their own gods, rejecting Him, God calls this man Abram. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, He tells him to go out of his country. Then again in verse 2, as we talked about last week, He's going to make him a great nation. He's going to bless them, make His name great, so that, end of verse 2, you will be a blessing. And the end of verse 3, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Abraham got stuff. Family, wealth, a nation eventually. And after they came out of captivity in Egypt, 400 or so years later, they were given their own country and they were blessed. As we've already talked about primarily, they did not follow God despite all the blessings they had. They were blessed, but they were not a blessing. But God would indeed keep His promise to Abraham because eventually He would send an offspring, Jesus, who would be the Savior of all peoples everywhere, those who would trust Him. So, through Abraham, God indeed has blessed the world. And that's what's going on in Acts chapter 11, the undoing of the cursing of the nations. And and that's why... Acts chapters 10 and 11 are such a pivotal moment in history. This promise that was made to Abraham probably around the 19th century B.C. is finally coming to pass, almost two millennia later. And now we're two millennia beyond that. And what's God doing through Jesus? We are sitting here as trophies of His grace. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And now what are we to be? We have been blessed to be a blessing. We must be wary of all internal obstacles to God's or our ministry of reconciliation. And then because of what God is doing through His Son and now through the church, we are to be in all and take comfort. God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is reversing the effects of the rebellious fall of humanity. This is the conclusion of the church here At the end of our section today, the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles. The same gift the Jews got at Pentecost. In verse 17, here's how they assess this. If then God gave the same gift to them, to the Gentiles, back in chapter 10, as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's been driving to that final point. So when the circumcision party and the rest of the church heard this, they fell silent. The Debbie Downers, the wet blankets, the killjoys put their hands over their mouths. They got nothing left to say. It's a compelling argument. And then they worship. They glorify God saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What did these Jewish, these Jewish bigots, these Jewish sinners need. The repentance that led to life. And Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the covenant given to Abraham, that Jewish people would be a blessing to the world. Jesus was that blessing. Jesus gave His own people, His ethnic brothers and sisters, access to God, repentance that led to life. 
And then he gave them his spirit. The Gentiles were no worse and no better, and what did they need? They needed repentance that led to life, and the gift of the Spirit, the sign of the new age, where we are reconciled to God and brought back to newness of life. What God does in the giving of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the new covenant. If we're left to ourselves, we will never treasure God, we will never worship Him, we will never obey Him. We have hearts of stone that mark our rebellion. What has God done in the new covenant? He has sent His Son to die for us, to take our punishment, raised Him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. Then He pours out His Spirit on all who will trust His Son. So these hearts of stone might be replaced with hearts of flesh. It's like a spiritual transplant And now our hearts can beat for God. We are no longer curved in on ourselves, worshiping ourselves like the people did at Babel in Genesis chapter 11. But God has ended our rebellion, made Abraham a blessing to the nations by sending a son. And now our hearts are not turned inward, they're turned outward to God. But not just to Him. We are to be conduits of His ministry of gracious reconciliation to the world. Do you see how the Bible is all about this one story? God making sinners his own. God making his enemies into sons and daughters. And the surprising thing of Acts chapters 10 and the first part of chapter 11 is he's doing that for all peoples. Everyone born into this world as a son or daughter of Adam and Eve are born into rebellion. And it will take a sovereign act of God's spirit To move us from rebellion to worship. That had happened for Cornelius and his friends back in Acts chapter 10. Peter was in all of this, came back, pushing back against the opposition and saying, the gospel is for all. So the initial response is silence, consideration perhaps, even lament at their pride. And after lamenting, And we have to say repenting of their opposition and their ethnic prejudices. They worship. And as we read through the rest of the book of Acts, their their worship is accompanied by obedience. It's not just a mental ascent. They go out into the world and they take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what the rest of the book of Acts is about. Let's look back once again in Romans chapter 15. We read this earlier in our scripture reading time, but I want to point out a couple of things here for us practically. In Acts chapter, or sorry, Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We who have been blessed have been blessed to be a blessing. That's the idea. Those of us who have stuff, resources of time and talent and treasure are to to leverage those talents, those blessings for others. Let each of us, verse 2, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And the example, of course, is Christ. That's the foundational example for us. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. He bore our sin. Verse 7 
the apostle says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is suggesting that Jews and Gentiles who lived together in one church had to live together in harmony. And and that's true for us. Not so much the Jew-Gentile thing, but, but we are different from one another. Different gifts, different backgrounds. And as we welcome other people into this church family, we'll find people who are different than us. And rather than being freaked out by that and paralyzed by fear, we should look at this as God's intention all along. Because Christ has welcomed us, we welcome others. They are His friends, friends of a friend, and and we welcome them. This has dramatic implications for the way that we even live together as a family. Let love be genuine, Paul says in Romans 12. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's what Mark prayed about earlier. If we are constantly seeking others to serve us, we miss the point. Did not the Lord Jesus come to serve rather than be served? Most of us are growing in this. There are some of us who have a long way to go in this. And I I call you to consider and repent this day. If the Lord Jesus poured his soul out to death to reconcile us to God, showing us that he came not to be served but to serve, should we not do the same with willing, glad hearts? Will it cost us? Undoubtedly. But what will we receive? We will receive increased relationship and we will receive increased joy. For is there anything better than using our resources and leveraging them for people who are in need? There is inexpressible joy that comes from this. And most of us know that. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter, at intervals, who himself struggled with this, teaches us, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter doesn't speak this from an ivory tower. Peter spoke this as one who led a life of continual repentance. Peter at first was not a hospitable person but became so because he was in awe of the gospel and his Lord called him to serve others this way. So we must be wary of internal obstacles to our ministry of reconciliation to which we've been called. And because of what God's doing here in Acts chapter 11, which we are beneficiaries of today, we should be in awe of his work of redemption and take comfort that we are included God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is reversing the effects of the rebellious fall of humanity. We would not be here today if it was not for His gracious work. Let us be in all and let us take comfort. How do we respond? First, because our enemy knows how to appeal to our latent, those are the remaining under-the-surface things, our latent prejudices and selfish preoccupations, we must be on guard And help one another fight back. People's souls are at stake. 
I'm going to put the other one up here. I was told my application points are long, but I do them on purpose so that you can logically move to them, okay? So foundation and response. God's relentless pursuit of his enemies, us, should both give us rest and propel us into a life of reconciliation and hospitality. I'm going to talk about these and leave them up here so you can jot them down. Because our enemy, Satan, knows how to appeal to our flesh, prejudices that are still there, despite years of Christian discipleship, they're still underneath the surface and they come out in ugly ways and surprising times. He knows how to appeal to those. He also knows how to appeal to our selfish preoccupations. The circumcision party of the beginning of Acts chapter 11, they were so concerned about moral propriety that they couldn't even consider that Jesus Christ was reconciling other enemies to himself. They had forgotten about their own enemy-like rebellion. Because of their prejudices and because of their preoccupations, they criticized Peter. But eventually, they put their hands over their mouth and repent and worship. And so today, we too, perhaps should put our hands over our mouths, literally or metaphorically, and realize that we ourselves have prejudices and preoccupations which keep us from missional obedience. So what do we do? We must be on guard and help one another fight back against these inevitable tendencies. And I say we have to help one another because sometimes we can't see ourselves very well. So invite other people into the conversation. I had an amazing lunch with one of our members of our church family this past week talking about these very things. It was incredibly helpful. It was convicting. It revealed some things inside of me which were ugly, but really fruitful. I I encourage you to help each other with this, to help each other see yourselves for who you are, and then point each other to Jesus, the reconciler of all peoples. Why? People's souls are at stake. But if we're caught up in our prejudices and our preoccupations, we can't possibly think about them. Missional outreach will never happen if we're caught up in these things. And lastly, because God has relentlessly pursued His enemies, you and me, no matter what your spiritual heritage is, you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath, and so was I. But Jesus was not ashamed to call me a brother or you a brother or sister, but has brought us back to the Father, From enemies to children of God, to people who are going to experience his just wrath, and instead we sit at his table. Because this is so, we should be at rest. There's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. Jesus has done this, so we should be at rest. But not just this, not not resting on our heels. When I say rest, I mean something more like peace. But with this thought in mind, with this truth which grips our hearts and leads us to peaceful rest, we are also to be propelled outward, living lives of reconciliation and hospitality. So outside the church and inside the church. Your home should be a place of hospitality. 
but, but your life should be a life of hospitality. When people encounter Jesus' people, when people outside the church encounter Jesus' people, his ambassadors, his agents of reconciliation, sent out from his embassy, like today we're, we're inside the walls of the embassy, so to speak, in a few minutes we're going to scatter out into our communities as ambassadors. When we do that, we're saying to them, welcome in. Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus who welcomed me in. The way you talk to them, the way you leverage your resources on their behalf, the way that you courageously speak the gospel to them, it welcomes them to the Savior. And then inside the embassy, so to speak, as well, right? Not finding fault with people, not holding grudges, not holding them to a standard that even you don't live up to, not being irritated with them, but as Paul says, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, pouring out your life for the good of another. Inside and outside, we are to be people who, like Jesus, welcome in, who gather in. So let our spirits and, and let, the, let the expenditure of our resources not be that which pushes people away, but that which gathers in. May God help us with this for His glory, for our joy and the joy of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now 